And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, January 9th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, in our Presidential Rank Award series, a distinguished cybersecurity career leads to a top federal award, plus what a cybersecurity company thinks of DOD's new proposed rules there for cyber. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, when federal employees open their first paychecks of the new year, most will see a bigger number. That's thanks to that 5.2% federal pay raise for general schedule employees in 2024. But not everyone will get their full raise. That's because of something called pay compression. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me now with the latest. And Drew, compression sounds like squeezing, and squeezing and pay don't sound like great words that go together. That's right, but that pretty much is what it is. The idea is that over time, as federal raises go up for the general schedule, but there's a bit of a pay cap for some of the most senior-level federal employees on the general schedule, uh, that's where you see them kind of hitting this pay ceiling over time and Depending on the the federal pay raise, the year it is, and what those in this other pay system get, it varies year to year. But it is this phenomenon that just generally pushes your pay up against a barrier as you get higher up. So does that mean it gets worse and worse each year, the compression, because those at the higher levels, especially political levels, their pay doesn't necessarily go up. And so people are getting closer and closer to that ceiling. Is that what compression basically is? Somewhat. It's a little bit complicated to say that it just gets worse every single year because it really varies on a number of factors. So if you actually think about where the the pay compression comes from, it's because this most senior level ranks in, in the general schedule, and it depends on your location, so it won't affect everyone in the same way. But some of those at the, those that very top part of the general schedule uh, are capped due to not being able to exceed by law level four of the executive schedule. And that number does go up year to year. It's based on the Employment Cost Index, or ECI. Generally, it will go up a little bit, but a lot of times it won't go up as much as the federal pay raise for the general schedule overall. And that's where you start to see that disparity. So, for example, this year, 2024, we saw a 5.2% average pay raise for the general schedule. The executive schedule, that level four number went up about 4.5%, I believe it was. So, that's where you see that little bit of disparity. And there were actually several new steps and grades in a few different locality pay areas that were added to that pay compression range, I suppose, and and are now hitting the pay ceiling. So who gets compressed, so to speak, those that are close to that level four of the senior executive service, people highly ranked, but not quite at that level? They keep getting closer and closer to it, and they're moving faster than it's moving. So it is essentially when someone who is on the GS pay system, but their pay, if it was going to have the, for for example, 5.2% raise, uh, and that would have put them above what the level four on the executive schedule gets, that's where you would see that cap. So for this year, it is $191,900 is the executive schedule level four pay cap. So anyone on the general schedule whose pay by a 5.2% pay raise would have exceeded that, their pay is going to be capped at that exact number. 
got it, and you did some looks close up at locality and how that affects all of this coming ahead. What did you find? Generally, it's not really a huge surprise. Those that are living in higher cost areas are the ones who are going to be most affected uh, by pay compression. That's because, you know, we have these now 58 different locality pay areas across the country. And depending on what uh, private sector workers make versus public sector, those in higher cost areas are going to have a little bit higher pay raises than the 5.2%. So, for example, in San Francisco, that's one of the uh, areas with the worst levels of pay compression. They have most of their GS-15s are are above or hitting that pay ceiling, as well as now steps 9 and 10 at GS-14. Uh, so that's, that's where it is the worst. I guess besides senior executives, who would like to fix pay compression and what are some of the solutions to actually fix it? You do have the Biden administration saying in their budget proposal from fiscal 2024 that they are looking to address the issue. Uh, It has gotten worse in 2024 as well as in in other recent years. The idea behind this, you know, some may say, okay, just because, you know, uh, because these people are at higher level pays, um, you know, why is it? such a big deal if you're making almost $200,000 in salary. Why is it? Why is pay compression a big deal? You have a lot of different stakeholders and groups saying that these people are managers and they should be kind of uh, rewarded for the work. And it's more a matter of principle rather than the actual salary that they do have. Well, if you're at the senior executive level for anyway, and you're running a large multi-billion dollar program, $191,000, frankly, is actually not that much money. Uh, especially, you know, when you compare to what people that run, I mean, look at General Motors chief makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year for a, you know, mediocre performing organization to be charitable. So I can see the argument there. Right. And and to think about it in another way as well, federal employees who do hit that pay ceiling, then from there on are going to have smaller pay raises. And eventually when you have more people from uh, lower grades, lower steps, kind of reaching that same level, then you can argue that there's years of experience difference between these two, but they're getting the same pay for for different levels of experience. Right. And by the same token, you could work and gain experience and get better and better at something, but the pay increases become smaller and smaller till you bump up against a ceiling, and then that's compression. So is there anything actually going on to try to fix it besides people admiring this horrible problem? Well, as I mentioned, the, the Biden administration is looking to try to address the problem. They said that they would have a legislative proposal on it. We haven't seen anything yet. I actually spoke to OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver the other day. He said they're continuing to work through those issues and hope to have more to share soon, but he didn't really give a solid timeline on it. Other than that, in Congress, there is a bill called the Pay Compression Relief Act. This was introduced by a group of House Democrats, and that would essentially try to address the problem uh, by allowing locality pay adjustments for GS employees who end up reaching that pay cap, which is part of the problem and, and why you see a lot of that pay compression in the first place. So is it fair to say that pay compression is worse in the locality pay areas than in the areas of the country that don't have locality pay? The rest of U.S. locality or those who aren't in a locality don't get impacted by pay compression. And not every locality does get impacted by pay compression. There's, I believe it's now 35 of the 58 
pay, locality pay areas who do have at least some federal employees who are being affected by it. Um, that's about 60% of localities who have pay compression to some extent. So it's really a surgical fix that's needed, not some grand scheme costing billions and affecting hundreds of thousands of federal employees. I think what I'm going to be looking for is what the Biden administration puts out and see what their proposal is going to look like. That'll kind of tell what they're thinking. And if it's something that could be possible, we'll just have to see. Well, it is annoying for people, I think, if you feel like you're getting more responsibility and getting better at your job and improving performance of your mission delivery. It'd be nice to have that reflected in your pay. And again, not many feds do this because they expect to be paid like General Motors, but they would like to at least be paid by what the government is best capable of. Right. I think that that is a good point. And just one other note that I'll mention, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEBS, this year showed that 57%, only 57% of federal employees were satisfied with their pay. So that is quite low. It's it's actually declined since, I believe, about four or five years ago. Uh, so that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. And I think this is, for a lot of senior executives in government, a really big concern for them. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of her coverage of this at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what a cybersecurity company thinks of that new DOD cybersecurity proposed rule. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Industry and government alike have been pondering the new proposed rule on vendor cybersecurity published just a couple of weeks ago. The Defense Department wants to finally get its Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program off the ground, CMMC, and that would impose new requirements on contractors. For one industry view, we turn to the Chief Technology Officer at Fortinet Federal, Felipe Fernandez. Mr. Fernandez, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, exactly what does this impose on industry? Because I think depending on how large the company is and whether it's a prime or a sub or a sub of a sub, the requirements vary. Certainly. And I think what the DOD would tell you is it doesn't impose very much in regards to differences from the already existing obligations in DFARS 7012. What the DOD would say is industry has already incurred these costs uh, to implement any security controls that are required to be awarded DOD contracts. However, there are some obligations for certification assessments for organizations seeking level two or level three certification. So I think that's really important to understand. Also, what's going on is organizations need to understand that these assessments, depending on the size of the organization, are going to vary in cost. So anywhere between $100,000 to $20 million, according to DOD estimates. Yes, the assessment and the third party, that whole apparatus is just getting stood up. And so you're going to have to hire somebody to come in and say, yes, what they say they have, they actually have. And that, that entity would report that back to DOD. That's right. And the good news on that front is the DOD has made some changes to the assessment process, essentially injecting more assessors into the pool available for industry participants to select for their various assessments. So you're not waiting as a single company for assessors to become available to make you ready to be awarded DOD contracts. You can essentially get an assessor earlier than what was presumed with the earliest ruling. And do the objectives of this whole program apply 
only to whatever government DOD data that the company might possess? Or is it also the company's own data, which I guess from which a bad guy could infer what's going on in the government? Well, it's really important to understand that it's about federal contract information and CUI. So it is important for entities to understand exactly how that data traverses their systems to design and really illustrate a workflow for that so they can be audited. And it's really that data that the DOD is concerned about. Because contracting information could also be CUI in some cases, sensitive but unclassified. For example, just to make something up, if an order for a million howitzer shells should come in and the shipment of where they're headed is in that contracting information, that could be valuable to an enemy. That's right. With enough pieces of SCI cobbled together, adversaries can really put together a plan of action and really execute advanced persistent threats against the United States and its interests. And fundamentally, there are certain technical controls you have to have in place that's presumed under CMMC. What are the chief ones? And in your experience, how many companies actually have it in place? For the most part, most organizations are applying these security controls or these practices, as they're called, particularly as they're framed in level one. In level two, it calls out 110 NIST 800-171 revision two controls or practices. I think that's also important. This has also been raised as a comment from a lot of the field is that the CMMC interim, uh, not interim ruling, but proposed ruling refers to NIST 800-171 revision two, which is the current standard, but revision three is on the precipice and about to be released. And that is actually what the DFARS refers to in 7012. So we're looking forward to seeing if the DOD clarifies that once the proposed rule becomes an interim rule or sticking with that, and it may be to make it easier on industry to implement these controls and not have to implement the newer controls from revision three. Because NIST solicits comments and issues revisions kind of on its own schedule, not on DOD's schedule necessarily. Certainly. And we know it could be challenging uh, for industry to adopt the new revision uh, and implement all of those controls. Obviously, with more controls, it becomes more costly for the assessments. And I think DOD is trying to help industry out. My assessment of it is DOD is trying to help industry out by saying the NIST 800-171 revision 2 is good enough. And we'll see where revision three comes into works. Uh, maybe that comes into future revisions of, of the ruling. We are speaking with Felipe Fernandez. He's chief technology officer for Fortinet Federal. And Fortinet itself is a cybersecurity vendor. And so are there special, I don't know, requirements or impositions for cybersecurity for people selling cybersecurity? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that entities are looking at us to provide them is help with access control, application control, things that allow them to provide or get greater granularity into controlling who, what has access to which information on their systems and when, and definitely contextual awareness around this access so they can apply strategies like zero trust, for instance. Yeah, I was going to say these are in service of the zero trust idea. And I mean, at what point will they say, well, you have to have micro segmentation, you know, and therefore that every call from every application to every possible database is a micro segment, a micro divided segment, and it has to have controls in place and so forth. It gets to be a big deal to do. Certainly. And it may be that DOD and NIST start rolling NIST 800-207 on zero trust guidance into these regulations 
and actually enforcing uh, the assessment and verifying that these controls are in place in such a manner. Uh, but zero trust and these micro-segmentation, as it's referred to in industry today, I think is going to be rolled in in short order uh, as these controls are in place uh, and a standard or, or at least a baseline is founded. So CMMC is in some sense a compliance exercise, but that is only the case alone if you have the technology in place. So I guess my question is, who should be involved in a company in making sure that that contractor is good with CMMC? Well, from a company perspective, certainly at the highest levels, you need adoption. You need the CISO to be involved, particularly, I would say CEOs need to be involved as well uh, to ensure they have executive sponsorship on anything that needs to be funded or efforts that need to be resourced in order to become compliant with CMMC. As we know, this will impact the company's ability to be awarded DOD contracts, and that could be very much their livelihood, depending on the organization's go-to-market strategy. And serving both the commercial side, you know, other companies and federal agencies, who's generally in better shape, CMMC aside, industry or, or government, do you think? Loaded question, I guess. Well, what I can say is uh, both sides have been focusing on it for quite some time now. Speaking from Fortinet Federal's perspective, small businesses to large businesses have come to us over the past couple of years to help them implement practices that have been called for in the various CMMC levels, once CMMC level one through five, now one through three. And so these controls uh, are taken very seriously by the organizations who feel like the federal government business is important to them. Um, and I would say the DOD, obviously, although small, uh, the CMC PMO office has taken it seriously. Uh, one of the things you can note from the proposed rule was that they're re-emphasizing why this is important. And they have not budged as to why the requirements are what they are. However, they have tried to ease the burdens, if you will, and make the implementation uh, a lot easier for these organizations. And just a final question on small businesses, because if you started a business and you want to get some of that OTA money or whatever the case might be, or FAR you know, contracts, the last thing you want to do is build a complicated IT system. You're going to go with cloud applications and cloud hosting if you're a small business startup. But that doesn't absolve you from worrying about CMMC compliance, does it? No, it does not. And you're right. They do have less complex systems and perhaps... Uh, maybe only subject to level one, but uh, DOD does estimate that 60,000 small businesses will be subject to level two certified assessments. So uh, that's going to come at a cost, uh, which DOD estimates to be around $105,000 every three years uh, just for the assessment itself. But from a technology perspective, they have the benefit of modern technology helping them really collapse the infrastructure that's required to implement security controls around CUI and FCI. Felipe Fernandez is Chief Technology Officer at Fortinet Federal. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the so-called budget deal is only the start of a lot of hard work. But first, in our Presidential Rank Award series, a distinguished cybersecurity career leads to a top federal award. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
My next guest has a long career as an engineer and cybersecurity practitioner for the Navy and Marine Corps. He reached the senior executive service nearly 10 years ago. Now he's on the civilian side of government as the chief information security officer for the Homeland Security Department. And he's among the latest cadre of presidential rank award winners. Ken Bible joins me now. Mr. Bible, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Good to be with you. Thanks for uh, having me. And I still think of you as the Marine Corps Chief Information Security Officer because you were there so long. But that's not a bad thing, Tom. <laughs> but now you're at DHS. And, well, I guess my first question is, what did they tell you you got this award for? Well, you know, I hope it recognized the continuous or continued service that I've had as an executive. You mentioned the Marine Corps contributions or the time that I spent in the Pentagon and, and really working through the network modernization plan for the Marine Corps, some of the investments that I championed in resilient communications as we were coming out of the land wars and moving into more maritime expeditionary and the tactical cloudlet really being a champion for the tactical edge employment of cloud technology. But in DHS, I came over in January 2021, which right as the scope of the SolarWinds incident was really being realized. And I think the focus within DHS was the leadership that I had in the recovery effort and really enduring types of things that we've been able to put in place as a result of thinking about that recovery. So things like our need to be able to prioritize cybersecurity investments. So we developed a unified cybersecurity maturity model, which allowed us to look at ourselves at a program component and as a department level in terms of our cybersecurity maturity and prioritize investments that we're making. Importantly, too, thinking about supply chain risk management was really at the heart of what happened in SolarWinds and really catalyzing some discussion about how would we assess our vendors who build systems for us or that provide services for us. So that's translated into a cyber hygiene assessment that was part of the secretary's priority on using our contracting authority to build up American cybersecurity posture and industry. I think that's been very profound and impactful. So I'm very proud of that work. And then third, just how we look at ourselves in different ways. So launching the Hack DHS initiatives that we put in place to be able to do bug bounties, to bring external researchers in to look at our systems. And as CIO Heisen says, the cheapest insurance you can buy, because now you're leveraging the power of the external researcher to see what might have been missed when a program was being developed. All right. And so that implies then that for all of the stories over the years of cybersecurity breaches, all of the policies released, the laws issued, there is progress in cybersecurity for the federal government. I think so. Yes. I mean, the challenge we have as probably others have talked about is that we keep on shouting that we need more money for cybersecurity, but we have very few objective ways of measuring whether we actually got what we paid for. And that was really to me, I can't guarantee that a breach isn't going to happen, but what I can do is focus the investments that's being made so that I optimize my chances that I'm going to avoid that breach. Or if I do have a breach, I can contain it rapidly and avoid the loss of data. And you bring an engineering background, a pretty solid engineering background to this, even though the most recent jobs you've had involve a lot of policy, a lot of compliance, a lot of budget planning and so forth. But even in those activities, do you think that the engineering background is helpful? I absolutely do. I always go back and say that at the heart of my thinking is having an engineering background. My very first job as a nuclear engineer at the former Charleston Naval Shipyard in Charleston, South Carolina, really embedded in me this desire to kind of understand and quantify what I was doing. 
quantify what I'm trying to go achieve as an outcome. And so that discipline of engineering has carried through with me for the entirety of my 39 years as a federal employee and certainly the last 10 or 11 as a senior executive. We're speaking with Kenneth Bible. He's Chief Information Security Officer of the Homeland Security Department and one of this year's Presidential Rank Award winners. And the other thing I think maybe that ties in from specifically the nuclear engineering idea is that, you know, in that domain, you have to really control your variables. And if one variable changes in one place, you better document it and know what it's going to mean down the line because of the potentially disastrous consequences. Does that also kind of seems like it should play in cybersecurity also. I think it does. We certainly look at it, or I've tried to go look at it through the lens as part of this unified cybersecurity model, that there are many different aspects, different facets that you're trying to employ as part of a cybersecurity program. And you've got to balance those. And if you take away from one area, you're exactly right. You're going to impact a secondary area. And how do you balance that? This is about risk management. It's not about risk avoidance because there's always going to be risk. So how do you start to go get some sort of a objective feel for where you're carrying those risks, and then how do you want to mitigate them where it's appropriate? Yeah, risk management should lead to disaster avoidance, I guess, is what we need a better way to put it. it. Exactly right, exactly right. And on the issue of public service and the civil service that you've been a member of for so long, comments on what does it take to kind of have a consistent career and consistent motion in what can be, you know, pretty heavy waters sometimes? To me, it's always been about staying curious. I talk about this sometimes with students, or very frequently with students, that the job that you end up in hasn't been invented yet. And that certainly was true for me. I mean, Steve Katz just passed away. He was the first CISO, or credited as being the first CISO in history. The role, that was 1990-something, right? I started my career in 1985. The role that I'm in didn't exist. In fact, much of cybersecurity was still very nascent. It wasn't really a big construct in people's minds when they were using technology back in the 80s and 90s. So this is about staying curious, being able to learn new things as you go along in your career, not being afraid of learning those new things, because the government provides opportunities at a very early level in your career to take on a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I've seen it in my career, and we're seeing it certainly with the new cyber talent management system that DHS has put in place. These entry-level candidates that we're bringing on board bring tremendous amounts of experience from other work that they've done, and they can come in on the ground running and be able to contribute to the cybersecurity mission of the department. And they're curious. That's the key. Stay curious. Stay willing to learn. And as CISO of DHS with its many components, that seems to be a perennial challenge for people that have agency-wide or department-wide jobs at a place like DHS when all the components have a great deal of autonomy and budgets and their own CISOs. What's the best advice for managing that for people that might be headed to that SES level? Well, it goes back into the executive core qualifications. One of the key executive core qualifications in my mind is building coalitions. And how do you bring people together in terms of how to govern, right? I'm extremely proud of the CISO council that I've been able to foster in DHS because it's the CISOs from all of the components. And it's not me making a decision unilaterally for the department. I'm the CISO for the department. I cover the entirety of the department, not just headquarters or management. 
but I have the counsel of these CISOs from all across the department. And these are smart folks, and they provide extremely good advice and collaboration as we think about how to do things department-wide. I would say going back to the reason perhaps that I was nominated for the PRA is also that piece of how do you make decisions? How do you govern? And it was very important to me coming over from the Pentagon to bring those constructs of how do you build a team? How do you build that decision-making capability for the department? And I think we've got one of the most effective councils out there that I've seen anywhere in government. I'm extremely proud of that and having been able to bring that together and lead that group through some pretty major decision over the last three years. And if you look at your career, SPAWAR and Navy and Marine Corps and Homeland Security Department, there is one thread, and that is big and bureaucratic. And not because they're evil, but just because bureaucracy goes with size more than with domain. At some point, would you ever like to work for maybe a small hardware store? (laughs) Well, you know, certainly being involved in smaller scale work has some appeal. I mean, I think that maybe regional, the challenge with having been and performing working at a federal department level, the third largest federal department, is that you really have a desire to see that impact. You really desire to see what your impact is on the missions of something as large as DHS. DHS, across its different components, interacts with the public more than any other federal agency in the government. It's kind of hard to kind of say, well, I don't want to do that anymore or to impact that kind of a mission. It's been very uh, rewarding and humbling to be part of an organization that has that kind of mission. So you won't be like LBJ leaving the White House and running his ranch and four ranch hands as if it was the White House, huh? (laughs) I don't know. I have two toy poodles that might want to weigh in on that. They might just want to have my attention full time. But I think I want to be able to continue to contribute and and have an impact, whether that's helping in governance in some fashion in uh, corporate or being able to advise and and continue to contribute. I think that goes back to once you've built this mindset of curiosity and wanting to learn, that doesn't stop. So I think, uh, to me, i got to eat my own dog food there. If I say that's an important characteristic, uh, let me live that mission. Let me live that out. And the poodles will eat their own dog food. (laughs) (laughs) And and my food as well. (laughs) Right. Ken Bible is Chief Information Security Officer of the Homeland Security Department and one of this year's Presidential Rank Award winners. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, the so-called budget deal is only the start of a lot of hard work. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The top-line budget agreement Congress worked out last weekend doesn't mean the work is done. Members still have to work out the agency-by-agency allocations and whatever policy riders each side can stomach. We get the industry view from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, just when you think things are hopeless and we're here for a shutdown or a rest of our lives CR, well, something breaks. So what's the industry view of this? Well, Tom, yeah, the industry view is uh, there's a huge amount of uncertainty here, right? This deal that was announced on Sunday, and and we've seen two sides of it. We've seen the statement from Speaker Johnson on the House Republican side, where he's put out his letter to colleagues. Then we've seen the statement from uh, Senate Majority Majority Leader Schumer and uh, and House Minority Leader Jeffries, uh, which 
cast a different light on the nature of the deal. But it is an essential first step, right? Because if you don't have agreement on top line funding, you can't do any of the other elements that come into play. So contractors are at least glad to see some uh, agreement on what the numbers look like. So we can go into those numbers a little bit and then into the next steps. But that final top line number that they did agree to is derived in, at some loose degree from what it is that the administration submitted for a 2024 budget. So it's not as if HHS is going to get a $50 billion variance or anything. No, that's probably true. And and uh, and within it, so, you know, the, the original Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was passed late May and the president signed on June the 3rd, that's the one, it didn't avoid a shutdown. What it avoided was default on national debt, right, which is far more traumatic to the global economy than a, than a government shutdown would be. Um, that had a cap of $886 billion for defense, $704 billion for civilian agencies. But then there were these side deals to add about another $69 billion to the civilian agencies that would get them back up to not really what the president had requested, but well above uh, what they had for FY23. The real problem, though, as you alluded to, is how do you break this down agency by agency? The Fiscal Responsibility Act didn't do that. Each House of Congress uh, did their own from, a, from an appropriations point of view, but it didn't include all of the side deals. And now they've got to go back and rework these, especially on the House side. And they don't have much time. I mean, Tom, you know, between the 9th of January uh, today and the 19th of January, when uh, the first four bills come due or we have a shutdown, um, that's only a handful of legislative days. And there's an awful lot of work to be done. So this is this is where contractors have to be paying close attention. All right. So you have outlined possible paths forward if Congress would listen to David Berto and others that have a rational view of the way things ought to work in the world. And uh, let's go through some of those. Your show gives us the opportunity for at least somebody to hear us, whether they listen or not uh, remains to be seen. But you're right. There are really four possible paths forward. I mean, the easiest one or the one that is most consistent with what regular order would be is the appropriators will rewrite all 12 bills or at least the four that are due on January 19th and they'll pass Congress and they would be signed by the president before we get to that shutdown deadline. This is really hard. Uh, not only is it hard to do from a legislating point of view, but on the House side, uh, you know, the House uh, uh, Freedom Caucus has already indicated they're going to be opposed to this. They run the Rules Committee. You cannot get a rule through without Democratic votes. Uh, so it either has to be under suspension of the rules or or Democrats will have to vote for the rule uh, in the committee. Um, and of course, then there's always the possibility of that single member proposing a motion to vacate the speakership, uh, which we've run into. So there's some sort of bureaucratic hurdles, legislative bureaucratic hurdles along the way here. But that's one path forward. You could actually implement the deal through full year appropriations. The second path forward is you could, in fact, make enough progress that you'd say, OK, now we know what the deal looks like. Let's just do a full year continuing resolution, which is almost like a full year appropriations. It would just be one bill instead of 12 separate bills. Yeah, that's um, a good point. That's, We're speaking yeah. with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. This does not the deal that is does not rule out a CR for the rest of the year. It, it, it does not. And, and, you know, the speaker, Speaker Johnson, has stated publicly that that he does not intend to bring a short term CR to the House floor for a vote. He did not say he would not bring a full year CR to the House floor for a vote. So that is a second path forward. The third path forward, of course, would be a short term CR that would just buy you time to continue implementing the deal. Of course, when the speaker says he's not going to bring such a bill to, to the floor for a vote, that makes it a little hard for that option to, to, to occur. It could be done. 
under a discharge petition. There is a ripe discharge petition that could be activated for this, although it would still take about seven legislative days, so it would have to be activated really soon. And of course, the fourth pass forward, and perhaps the most likely given the time constraints here, is we will have a partial government shutdown at midnight on January 19th. Um, and there are some real implications for that. It's not only the four agencies covered by the appropriations bills, but there are three other cabinet departments, part of which would shut down and part of which would remain open. A very complicated procedure for the government to operate in. Yeah, imagine what that would do to telework policy if some of the people aren't working at all. <laughs> no, no kidding. So within DOD, you have all the military construction and family housing and real property maintenance would be suspended, but the rest of DOD would keep operating. In HHS, you would have the Food and Drug Administration suspended because that's under the agricultural appropriations bills, but the rest of health and human services would continue to operate. And under energy, all of energy would shut down except for the part of energy on the nuclear uh, side, the NNSA side, which would remain open and continue to operate. No guidance, as far as we know, has been issued either by these agencies or from OMB as to how they're going to do that. So that's one of the important things that contractors need to look at. There are a couple of others. Well, just on that point alone, the uncertainty that contractors feel then would be derived from the uncertainty that agency buyers must feel because they don't know when or how much money they're going to get. And so that tends to make them very conservative on commitments. You are absolutely right, Tom. Every agency, every program doesn't know, A, are we going to keep going or not? B, at what funding level? And C, when, right? And so the natural tendency, as you indicate, is if I don't know what's going to happen, if I don't know how much money I'm going to have, if I don't know when I'm going to get it, I'm not going to do very much right now because I want to wait and see what comes on. So the very first thing contractors have to do is be communicating very carefully with their government customers on what those expectations or possibilities are. The second thing that contractors have to do is they've really got to prepare for all four of those paths forward that I have uh, laid out there because you might get money, you might get it soon, you might get it later, you might not get it at all, you might have a shutdown, and, and we'll have to see how this plays out. I haven't even mentioned the further complicating uh, dynamic here, which is the debate over the supplemental for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and the border, uh, which is hanging in the balance as well and has some very real near-term implications, both for the government agencies and for contractors themselves. Yes, because in that supplemental is a lot of military spending. A lot of military spending, and much of it is to replenish the supplies and the stockpiles of munitions and weapon systems uh, that have been drawn down from those stockpiles over time, um, both for Ukraine and, and in recent months uh, for Israel itself. And, and by the way, the Taiwan election uh, results loom large here as well, because we're going to see what the Chinese reaction is uh, to the results of yesterday's elections when we get the final poll, poll numbers in. Sure. But what, what we need then are more shell companies to be created. That is, howitzer shell companies. <laughs> well, uh, we, we a little known fact that uh, we actually reduced uh, the capacity that we had to produce these munitions, particularly 155 millimeter shells, as part of the base closures back in 2005. Uh, because, of course, at that point, we didn't see uh, what was coming and, and what we see now in, in 2024. Um, it just goes to show that uh, it, the government needs to rely on its contractors to be able to shift and, and surge when necessary. But the government's responsibility for creating both the requirements for that surge and the funding capacity for it. Uh, we'll see more of that later this week. DOD is going to release its first ever uh, industrial base strategy. We're looking forward to seeing what that is, and we'll be happy to talk with you further about that on a later show. 
All right. In the meantime, David Berto is still president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, a steady voice through all of this. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. And uh, let's see how this unfolds over the next few days. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But first, while the topic A for 2024 might be artificial intelligence, the biggest challenge for the federal technology community will continue to be people. The obstacles around hiring, retraining, and training employees, as well as the return to the office mandate, is going to continue to test federal managers, who says, well, in his reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller asked a panel of current and former federal executives to weigh in on the top storylines for 2023 and what to expect in 2024. Jason joins me now with what they told him. All right, Jason, what did they tell you? First of all, they said there were some accomplishments in the past year. What did they highlight there? I talked to six people in and out of government, folks like Gundeep Aliwalia, the CIO at Labor, and Steve Brand, the deputy CIO for resource management at the Department of Energy, Guy Cavallo, the CIO at OPM, and then others like Renetta Spinks, the former uh, deputy CIO for the Marine Corps, also Mike Hettinger, Kevin Cummings, Jonathan Album, all names folks are probably familiar with if, if they've been focused on the federal IT and, and, and acquisition sector over the last uh, a few years. And what I heard was a whole series of interesting things, like the IDEA Act came up several times. This, this focus on customer experience, the implementation and the guidance that came from OMB this year, that was a big accomplishment. Several years in waiting, I think something that folks highlighted as this will help push forward the administration's plan around customer experience. Another big one was from Steve Brand from Energy. He talked about the special salary rate and this idea of paying IT and cybersecurity personnel more money. Tom, we know, based on our data that we've seen on our stories, we've posted that this has been a big topic. And again, this was a big accomplishment, according to Steve Brand. And, and I'll just highlight one other one, Tom, that, that really stood out to me. This comes from Renetta Spinks. She's now in the private sector, focused on cybersecurity. And she thought that the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency AI roadmap was a really important document. It was noteworthy because there's so much going on in cyber. The tactics, techniques, procedures are all changing, especially from cyber uh, threat actors, that you need this idea of, okay, how do you take advantage of secure, trustworthy AI to really battle against the ever-changing threats coming in from cybersecurity. So in some ways, the people challenge and the artificial intelligence challenge are related because you need the talent to do AI properly, and you got to have that talent stick around, so that relates to the pay issue. I think you're absolutely right, and this is what we hear time and again when we talk to all federal executives, whether in the IT world or not, that this talent issue, if we don't have the people, it doesn't really matter how great the tools are, the capabilities are, we're still going to be challenged. That's uh, another common theme that came out as they look back at 20. 23 and look forward to 2024. And you mentioned telework. Is that one of the challenges of just settling on a policy for everybody that we had in 23 that's carrying over into this year? From a telework perspective, Tom, I think what the, the return to the office is really what's come up time and again. What does that mean? How does how to make that work the best? How do you kind of balance out that need of every you know agency wants people in the office more often, but at the same time, how do you make it so it's it makes sense that they're there? They're not there on you know Zoom calls calls or WebEx calls or Microsoft Teams calls, and they are actually uh, having that collaboration that only happens or can only happen many times when you are in person. That's a good example of one big challenge that 
was in 23 will actually bleed into 2024. I just want to highlight two others that I think folks pointed out. Mike Hettinger, who used to work on Capitol Hill, he follows this uh, area very closely. And one of the things he mentioned was the Technology Modernization Fund. He says, listen, it's now six years old. The program has struggled, particularly in the eyes of Congress. So what will happen with the TMF in 2024? Tom, we know that Congress has appropriated no money so far for the TMF in 2024. Will that change? Uh, I know the TMF board has been very active in putting out the good news stories and the impact it's had. So I think that that's another area that I think a lot of folks will be looking at. And then, Tom, I think the last one I'll just mention real quick is AI. You can't not get around a conference, a discussion with a CIO or others in the federal technology sector without artificial intelligence, generative AI. We know that the Biden administration put out the executive order on AI. We know OMB has a draft memo out that implements a lot of that executive order. So there's a lot going on that, that I think folks are really looking, okay, we know what this was in 2013. That's really going to move into 24 at a much faster pace. Yeah, there is a lot going on, and they kind of converge, as we've discussed. And you talk to them about budgets, and it looks like maybe as we speak, there will be some sort of a budget deal for what's left of fiscal 24. And then there's the presidential election coming up next year. What do they say about all that? Yeah, interestingly, I asked them to rank in order between budget workforce and presidential election, what will have the biggest impact on the federal IT and acquisition community? Tom, I really expected for them to tell me either budget or the presidential election. And time and again, I heard from especially the federal executives that I asked that they thought workforce, workforce and workforce was still the biggest issue. You know, when it comes to budget and CRs and changes to their budget, they always said, hey, we're used to this. It's not the best way to run a railroad as, as the common refrain we've heard, but they're used to it. And I think from a presidential election now, Tom, either they didn't want to touch it because it's a hot potato issue or they didn't really think it has that big of a deal, you know, kind of that downward effect on them at the IT cybersecurity level, like it does, you know, at some of the bigger, more focused areas, whether it's, and especially none of these guys are political appointees as well. So maybe that's why they also felt like the presidential election would have less impact on them or their agencies specifically. Yeah, I get the sense that they don't care what happens officially in the presidential election. I mean, personally, they might. But the problem is that with budget uncertainty and with policy uncertainty, that tends to make the IT and the IT investment people a little bit conservative in terms of what they're willing to go out on a limb for because things could change beyond their control and then a lot of plans would have to be redone. I think that's the biggest challenge with any CR. Everyone knows, oh, okay, we have to live under the CR. We were used to that. It happens every year. You know, Congress hasn't passed the budget in, you know, on time in, in something like 20 years. At the same time, I think you're right, Tom. It's what happens on Capitol Hill, what happens with negotiations between uh, the White House and and Senate and House lawmakers. They don't really control. They can't really they don't have much of a say in. So I think you're right. I think that's why it's probably not that top of mind for them as they enter 2024 versus something like workforce where they do have a much bigger say. in. they do see that impact up close if they can't hire enough cybersecurity workers, if they can't hire enough folks who know data or data scientists or cloud security. Security or however you want to talk about whatever position you're trying to fill. And this applies not just to technology, it applies to acquisition, folks, contracting officers and, and cores, applies to the financial management, budget analysts, accountants, and applies to lawyers and doctors and nurses and so on and on and so forth. And I think everyone kind of feels like I can only control what I can control. And workforce is one of those things I can have a bigger impact on than, say, budget or even the presidential election. Yeah, so big as it is, the information technology complex, let's call it, is subject to the same vicissitude as military or anything else big in the government? Yeah, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind as we kind of look into 2024 is what's really kind of 
be emerging and, and I think what's really going to affect them at a day-in, day-out level. And, and Tom, I think one of the most interesting things that stood out is I asked, what was the big buzzword for 2024 that, that emerged post-2023? And, and again, I think most folks said artificial intelligence. Not surprising. Guy Cavallo said, no question, and give me a single sense, it is AI. Gundeep from Labor says generative AI going to play a big pivotal role. And in fact, he talked about the use of models and the human oversight that's needed. I also heard from Jonathan Album, the former USDA CIO now at ServiceNow. Again, AI was the generative AI was there. And how it could impact things like Freedom of Information Act, fraud detention, and even just the basic things like administration and AI day in and day out sure. requirements. I think that, Tom, when it comes down to it, a lot of the experts I talked to really were focused on things they can control, things that were in front of them versus the bigger picture issues like elections and budgets. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, as always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And be sure to check out his notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 